Well, it's good to see you this morning. It's good to be here in this warm little place that we call home. Um, I was just thinking as I looked back as Sarah and Lamar were worshiping, I bet it didn't dawn on the people who originally gave of their resources to construct this building that it would ever sit empty on a Sunday. Uh, But empty it is. It's the five of us here doing what we do uh, and trying to do it as safely as we can. I promised myself, Sarah, I would never start a sermon with a joke. I promised. Um, But I used to work for a man who did every single sermon started with a joke. I promised I would never do it. Needs must, what can I say? Trey's coming back. He's laughing in the back of the room. Tough times, so maybe this will cheer you up. So a wife comes to her husband 30 days into the COVID-19 quarantine, and she says, honey, I'm done. I'm putting all the kids on eBay. He says, no, honey, don't do that. They're homemade. Let's put them on Etsy. (laughs) I got a laugh from Mac in the back. That's good. I will content myself with that laugh. So, Well, good morning. Someone asked me yesterday on one of those, I don't know, 300 Zoom calls we do a week now, what comes after Easter? And uh, that, was, that was a really interesting question. Do you know what the church refers, uh, the, the Sunday after Easter, you know what they call it? They call it Low Sunday. And it's not because Low is some sort of high church thing. It's because it's the least attended Sunday in the entire calendar year. I wonder if you knew that. Uh, it's, I guess everyone feels like they got their duty out of the way and they went with grandma to church or watched a broadcast from a boardwalk and they're all good. So we don't expect a whole lot of people to turn up today. There's a lot of things going on out there, a lot of things to focus on, but welcome to Low Sunday. And also welcome to the beginning of what the church calendar is, is referred to as the great 50 days. And what does this mean? These are the 50 days, roughly, between Easter and Pentecost, which uh, in the ancient church, actually, in the, even in the Middle Ages, Easter was considered a season. It was not just a Sunday. So those of you who decided you'd fall off the radar today, welcome to 50 days. You're, you're dropping the ball on 49 of the 50. Anyway, that's, that's not actually even funny. But it's called the Great 50 Days, and it's the time between Easter and Pentecost. And the reason that the church calendar gives us 50 days to get into this reality is because how long does it take you, how long does it take me to live into the reality of a risen Savior? Well, it's going to take some time, and it doesn't just happen overnight. We have the time now we need to fully unfold what Christ's victory over death means. And the text that we're going to be considering uh, during these next six weeks come almost entirely from 1 Peter, the epistle that Peter writes. Also, some of Peter's actions in the book of Acts. So Peter will be our guide as we transition into these great 50 days. And as you know, Peter was the leader of the 12 disciples. And if you read closely in what he wrote, and even if you read closely in Paul, what you'll find as we process what this reality of a risen Savior means, you will find that both Peter and Paul and other writers as well consider the most compelling proof that Christ actually rose from the dead was nothing less and nothing more than a community of people who could live in joy, who could live in peace, and who could live in steadfast faith, even though they suffered and were persecuted. That's the compelling evidence that we are given by the writers of the New Testament. In fact, the central theme of this little letter that Peter writes to the exiles, those scattered uh, among various Asia Minor cities, and they're numbered in the first couple verses of 1 Peter, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the, the, the theme that emerges is precisely that, a community that can lift her voice in praise anyway, despite whatever the contextual reality may be. I've said this before, and this seems important to, be, to, to remind ourselves as we, as we move from a gospel writing into the epistles, that reading a New Testament epistle, which is another word for a letter, 
Reading a New Testament letter is a bit like picking up someone else's mail and trying to make sense of it. Thank you, Pete Enns, for that metaphor. But I think it's true. There's a lot of research that it takes to get back inside anything that is said by someone to someone else. So if we're going to make meaning of New Testament letters, we have some work that we're going to have to do. So it matters, if Peter is to be our guide during these next several weeks, that we understand who he was writing to and why. And this is the fun part about teaching uh, New Testament epistles. The who clues are in the first couple verses of chapter 1. There's a small group of believers that, are, that have cropped up around Asia Minor. So imagine north and spanning east from Palestine where, in Israel where the gospel story would have happened. There's a group of believers that cropped up around Asia Minor in the decades after Jesus' uh, teachings and his ministry. They were Gentile converts to Christianity. And that matters because they would have been seen as the atheists or the outsiders of their day. So let's do a little contextual work as we set this up here. Let me see if I can explain this. To be atheist means essentially to lack belief in the existence of God or gods, whatever that context may be. So what God or what gods are we talking about? Well, it would depend on the cultural context, wouldn't it? The recipients of this letter from Peter would have been seen as over and against, as unaccepting, as unbelieving of the prominent way, the prominent view of God of that particular place and culture. For example... If you reject evangelical Christianity in America today, you would earn yourself the title of atheist, essentially. If you were a Protestant growing up in Catholic, in Catholic Central Mexico in the 80s and 90s, which was my context, I was essentially understood and seen as an atheist to that system. I was an outsider or an antagonist, you might say a nonconformist. Similarly, during the time that Peter wrote his letter, Jews and the followers of Jesus would have been seen as the radical minority in the Greco-Roman world. Followers of the teachings of Jesus were seen as subversive even. They would have been thought of as profane, perhaps perverts, perverts, or even the anti-imperial. Also, it's important to understand, they would have occupied the very bottom layer of the socioeconomic structure. Peter writes to essentially a suffering, beleaguered, he writes to the hangers-on, people who would have been seen by society as different, perhaps even problematic. The fact is, if you read between the lines of this letter, the recipients uh, appear to be Gentile Christian women who were slaves, owned by or married to non-Christian men, which means for us, we have a gap to think about and manage between our two worlds. Many of us don't share much in common with the original audience of First Peter. You see, these folks lived in daily, genuine persecution, some even fearing for their lives. And COVID-19 notwithstanding, their suffering remains hard for us to imagine. They hung out on the very bottom rung of the societal significance, and that makes them the furthest thing from Americans early in the 21st century. It's just the truth. So what do I mean? What do I mean by this? Evangelical Christianity, for example, is our cultural context. In fact, you can't run for national office without certain bona fides, whether they're fake or not, whether you have to make them up or not. It matters. Do you remember a Mormon president? Of course you don't. Do you remember what it took to get JFK elected? it was difficult to even imagine a Catholic president. So in our culture, that would be the cultural expectation. So here's our challenge as we settle into 1 Peter as our guide for the next six weeks. Any document written to encourage Christians suffering political and societal persecution is gonna require that we make a sincere effort to get back inside it. It just isn't our reality. But I'm up for the task if you are. Here's a confession. I don't really like 1 Peter. I don't know if I can say that. 
If I'm honest, some of the material found here feels downright backwards, and I've been challenged on this all week. I'm willing to accept that it may have been understood as a move forward, as a leap forward for its time, but it's not my flavor, because in 1 Peter we get such ideas as telling slaves to submit to their masters, even if they're cruel, and we get advice to wives to proudly take any abuse from their unbelieving husbands as long as they act righteously, it's okay to take the abuse to save their soul. I don't think so. These are difficult conversations that are going to take some work. The truth is, parts of this letter feel like arcane, pre-modern advice that I don't think ought to be given. In fact, parts of this letter, like parts of other biblical letters, simply won't travel well over the centuries to us. You see Revelation layers like sedimentary rock. We know this. It accumulates over time. And when better, more faithful reads of the gospel empower us to deconstruct systems of oppression and the institutions established to preserve them like slavery and sexism, we don't go back, we go forward. So you know this, ANC people, you know this. I'm aware that parts of 1 Peter were used uh, to sanction American slavery in the southern pulpits during that time, and that's not okay. Slavery is evil, it always has been, period. That was a shameful scholarship. That was shameful interpretation of the text. I'm also aware that portions of this book have been used to manipulate women into staying married to abusive men, and that's not okay. Abuse is evil, period. That, too, was a shameful biblical interpretation of these texts. You see, you cannot use the gospel to sanction evil. Hang with me. You can sometimes use pieces of the Bible to justify evil. People always have, but the gospel does not work like that. We can do better textual work. We can do better scholarship, better cultural anthropology. You see, we can use our Christological lens, our understanding of Jesus, to interpret our sacred documents, always looking for the gospel buried in the context. This should feel familiar to you by now. So for the next six weeks, I'm choosing to trust the wisdom of the global church and follow along with the lectionary, even if 1 Peter is our guide. Our teaching team, the guild that I work with, will be leaning into this little book, trusting the Holy Spirit to find the gospel truth that sets all hearts free and will settle for nothing less. You see, I don't think that Peter's cultural world should have the last word on the equality of peoples or how women should be treated by their spouses. That would be an unnatural read of the text. I don't think it's supposed to do that. But here's the thing, if we can listen closely enough, the ancients can teach us a ton about how to exist, oh, even thrive in difficult and trying times when the nature of our Christian community stands in contrast to that of its cultural context. And that perfectly describes where we are at this point. You see, this little book is about joy and peace and faith that endures, even during tough times when good people are misunderstood and falsely accused, oh, there's things that endure even still. The wisdom found here can help us know where to set down our anchor when strong winds prevail. So know this at the outset. Not everything travels naturally across time and space, and you can count on me, you can count on us to be honest when we bump into something that Peter says that doesn't travel well, and there will be some of those things. You see, some cultural realities need to be buried they need to be outgrown, and we get to actively, in community, determine what harmonizes what we know to be true about God as revealed in Christ, and we get to build our community on those things. That's the work we do, uh, teaching the gospel here in ANC every week anyway, so that's nothing new. But I don't want us to be the kind of people who close our eyes and cover our noses at certain biblical texts and ignore that there. I want us to be honest about them. I want us to feel the freedom to understand that in the historical trajectory of truth and revelation, certain things fall in certain places without feeling obligated to build our community in 2020 on South Lamar on some old world arcane cultural values. I hope that makes sense. A bit of a long intro, but I'm kind of known for those. So I'm not pro-slavery or pro-abuse. 
or pro-submission in cases of marital abuse. I'm just not, and neither are you. And that's okay. We still have something to learn from the wisdom Peter writes to these small churches. You see, I am anxious to learn where to place our trust on what to build our hope, how to maintain our joy as a bustling, growing, thriving faith community during times when everything feels shaky and uncertain. Let me say it this way. I want us to listen as closely as we are able to the oppressed peoples, the oppressed communities of faith on the margin to see what sustained them during tough times. Okay, so that's enough of an intro. Let's listen to these words. Tell me if you can find some encouragement here. And I'm reading from 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, from the New Revised Standard Version. It reads this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, even now, if for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold and that though perishable is tested by fire, so that your genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when, Christ, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. That's one of my favorite sentences in all of scripture. Having not seen him yet, we love. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Some people read these opening verses of 1 Peter and say, here's proof enough that Peter couldn't have written it. Remember, we're talking about a Galilean fisherman. This is high polished rhetoric with lots of run-on sentences and lots of building ideas. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know that it matters. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, Peter writes, the salvation of your souls. Any conversation about new birth and a living hope or a living, breathing, adapting of our sense of purpose falls naturally in place after last week's message about the death of death itself. This follows on naturally from our Easter resurrection message. And it's a little bit like this. God's great mercy has birthed in us real hope that somehow, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which has produced for us something none of us had access to, namely an inheritance, one that lasts, which is reason to be glad, even if we still suffer now, because the genuine nature of our trust in God or our faith produces the desired result. And here's what it is. The ability and the willingness to praise and glorify God, even though, even though we suffer. The willingness to praise anyway. Now remember, Peter writes to oppressed peoples with little, if any, access to resources of any kind. So his use of the word inheritance is provocative. It's designed to be. Then, as well as now, when you're living day to day, trying to survive the ordeal of the next day, the subject of your fantasies, the content of your daydreams would most naturally gravitate towards abundant sums of wealth and provision. Money you would dream of to be accumulated and preserved, enough to be inherited. This would have been out of reach of the audience of, uh, that Peter was writing to. Out of reach, perhaps, but not beyond the realm of their imagination, which is the point of all sacred texts, to quicken the imagination of the reader. This inheritance that Peter describes goes well beyond anything like gold or silver. What is this imperishable, undefiled, unfading 
inheritance that he speaks of. It cannot be the absence of trials, the absence of suffering, and it isn't earthly riches at all, apparently. The inheritance Peter announces is something his readers already had access to, even though they had almost nothing. And I think now you're beginning to see the gospel in the text. See, the inheritance that Peter speaks of is the ability and the willingness to praise God and glorify him regardless of our circumstances. Even though they were suffering trials and tests, they had access to joy and peace rooted in a faith that was not dependent on the external circumstances. And this is tantalizing good news wrapped in really, really bad news. Let me see if I can explain. You say, what do you mean, preacher, by that? If you were reading this letter from the Apostle Peter, someone who your little community would have deeply respected, it would have been good news to receive the word that all of your enemies and your abusers and those who took advantage of you would soon be punished. That would be good news. That those who did evil deeds against you would have to pay, for their pri- pay the price of their, of their sins. That would have been something that you would, would perk up and listen to. That would have been good news, but that's not what Peter says, is it? The inheritance he speaks of outlasts all earthly wealth, but it exists in the presence of trials and tests and tribulations. In fact, Peter calls it joy, and joy in Scripture almost nearly always accompanies hardship. It almost never crops up outside of that conversation, and that's the point of joy. It's like the, flyer, it's like the wildflower that grows in a garbage dump. It rises and it thrives in the crack of the sidewalk, even where it's not supposed to. You see, it rises Anyway, this is the theme of joy. The bottom line is this. Steadfast steadfast faith under difficult circumstances is the gospel. It is preaching. It is proclamation. It is prophetic utterance. Unwavering faith is the ultimate proof that we have been raised to new life in Christ. Which makes all of this surreal since it's written by or in the name of Peter, the original walk away, the quitter par excellence in the inner circle of Jesus. You know who I'm talking about. He was the man who himself would go on to deny Jesus three times to a nameless female servant of the high priest. This letter was written by the man who cut off the ear of Malchus when Jesus was being arrested in the garden because he was afraid and he could not accept the defeat as the outcomes of his desires. Peter has nothing to teach us about steadfast anything unless time had somehow seasoned him, unless failure somehow taught him, unless loss and disillusion and disappointment somehow managed to rewire his insides by the time he writes this little letter. You see, Peter walked his journey just like we have to. He started someplace, maybe rough, and he ended up in another place altogether, just like us. He moved forward like us, doing his internal work, facing his own demons, softening his own heart, leaning in like we do every day. As much as this little letter contains advice that feels culturally out of step with our times, it also contains the wisdom of a time-weathered man who manages to get back up after so many spectacular public failings they are all recorded in our text. He manages to follow the love that found him. Perhaps Peter, of all people, is most qualified to speak with authority about what it takes to hold fast during trying times. What is our undefiled inheritance given to us by Christ? It's a joy that endures. Even when we've only begun to assess how much we have lost, joy is our inheritance, our countercultural birthright. 
What have we been given? What is our inheritance? It's a peace that endures, even if we find ourselves in terrible and unpredictable times. Peace is our inheritance. It's our countercultural birthright given to us by love itself. What is our gift? It's a faith that endures, a faith that remains steadfast, unwavering, even when there is so little to hang on to that makes sense anymore. Faith is our inheritance, our countercultural birthright, paid for in full by a God who sees and feels all of this pain and loss with us. So at the beginning of my thoughts today, I mentioned that the great 50 days is the time when the church considers what the resurrection of Christ actually means. It's when we take the time to fully consider and unpack how Christ's victory over death empowers us to live today. Not in the future, but today. Don't forget, this life of joy and peace and faith that Peter describes was still a reality, even though, as you and I both know, every single disciple of the 11 that remained of the 12 would go on to be a martyr of the church, except John the Beloved, who would die alone in quarantine. And that's not even funny, is it? They would all pay for, their, pay for this gospel with their lives, and yet somehow joy and peace and faith remained. So, what resources in our Christian faith can we draw on during these times when the walls of our lives feel like they're closing in on us? What can we trust to sustain us now? Well, if we haven't already, it might be, untime to un- might be time to unwrap the gift that we've already been given. Indescribable joy. Enduring peace and steadfast faith. By the way, when Peter or anyone else in the scriptures speak of salvation, it's never talking, they're never talking about where we get to spend eternity once we leave this earth. It's very much and always is this conversation of salvation. It's about now. It's about how we live right now. It's about this next moment and that moment's leading into the moment after that. It's my joy today is to encourage you and announce to you that your inheritance is fully available. It's fully available to you now if you can accept it. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks. Even in times when we're not sure what comes next, we give you thanks. Perhaps especially in those times. Guide us, comfort us, console us, lead us, transform us. Show us what to hang on to. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as the musicians prepare to sing a couple more songs, um, we always, when we gather in this little building, and will remain our tradition when we begin to gather again, we gather around Christ present in the preaching of the word and Christ present in the breaking of bread. And we're not one of those churches that believes you have to come into this building in order to receive the presence of Christ. In fact, nothing could be more untrue from my theological perspective. And so as you gather in your home, at your coffee table, or on your patio, or wherever you gather, I want you to think about those things that you're going to consume today that will sustain your body to a growing awareness in the work of God's kingdom. And I want us to just agree together that those things can be sacred. Those things are sacred. That is a sacred meal that you will partake of with your family. And so when you grab that bread or any variation of that and you grab that whatever you drink to sustain you, I want you to be reminded today that Christ is, it has promised us to be present in the doing of, of those things when we remember that that's how near his love is to us. 
And so when he lifts the bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks and he passes it to his friends and he lifts the wine and he says, this marks the covenant in my blood. I want you to be reminded that you don't have to come to a building to be fed by the love of God. You can do that anywhere. Anyone can do that anywhere. And so re remind yourself today as you, as you make those decisions about what you might eat and be reminded of the presence of Christ. We love you, Lord. As we wrap our service, uh, we have these words of benediction from Mark. And he writes, To the church beginning to feel trapped. So now you've seen them, the four walls of your life. No closer than they used to be, just closer than imagined. The psalmist calls it an inheritance, which is to say given, not chosen, but also to say a gift. You are to spend it all finding reasons why. The doors are not there so that you can leave, but so that Christ can enter. You are where you're supposed to be. Watch this week and God will come to you. Be blessed in the name of Jesus.